Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Well, how cool is this? It's the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com. Advertising Show, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and a very special guest today, actually out of New York, but originally uh, from Scotland, with a brand new book that we're going to talk about and learn a whole lot more from Michael Findlay, author of The Value of Art. He's also the director of the Aquavilla Galleries. And Michael is in New York this weekend. That's where we're talking to him from. Should be a great interview, as always here in the Advertising Show. We've also got Jeremy Kent, our European uh, correspondent, with an update uh, from uh, from Europe as uh, as advertising uh, things go over there as well. So all in all, we're looking for lots of fun with you today here at the Advertising Show. Brad, how the heck are you? Doing wonderful. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention to our guest who's in our virtual green room right now that by way of him appearing on our show. We have a worldwide audience, of course, and our European correspondent, Jeffrey, has told me off air that he has downloaded the book uh, because he has an interest in the art world. So he sold one book as a result of appearing on today's show. Really? One book so far. ROI is good. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, You know, uh, uh, the iPhone 5 has been in the news uh, lately, and I understand you were trying to uh, to, to get a hold of one of those, or at least attempting to. And I'd uh, love to hear the story. T- uh, talk about that for a bit here. Yeah, you know, I guess like anyone, if you're on the older program of an iPhone, in my case, uh, 4, and you want a new one, uh, you you want to check your, your uh, timeline to see if you're due a new phone, a new upgrade. Sure. So you when you call uh, Verizon, which happens to be my carrier, uh, leading up to the release of the iPhone 5, you get a recording that says it's very busy, unusually busy call time. You may want to check online to check your upgrade status, et cetera. So I did that. Okay. And when you, when you go there, uh, my upgrade status... Uh, looked uh, in error because I knew the date in which I purchased my uh, four, my four, and I knew that the date didn't coincide. So I didn't want to go through the call, so I did a chat. And in this sure. chat, back and forth, the lady explained how my anniversary date would be X, which was different. It actually ends up being like within the next month or so. Uh, and it was different than what it was showing online. So I asked her how she could go about changing that, and she explained, again, all through chat, uh, you're going to have to call the phone line and speak to them, business offices. I'm unable to help you with that. So I thought, hmm, Hmm. that's very odd. Now I'm back to having to go through the phone process, and the truth is, Mm -hmm. is I've decided to delay going through all of that until this craziness subsides on the interest of the iPhone 5. Mm-hmm. And what may happen is it may actually not only delay, but I may decide after several months to just wait till the 6 comes out. So it may have cost them a sale. And and, and not only that, but tarnished a, a relationship. Both you and I talked about 
the relationships that we have with uh, Verizon and uh, the fact that yours goes back to, I believe, you say 85, 86, mine was 87 or 88, uh, back when bag phones and shoe phones were in vogue and Car very phones, cool. Yeah. Almost wish I had one of those. Almost wish I'd kept that original one. It's probably worth some money now. But, uh, but anyway, uh, it, 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 it is amazing to me how technological companies can be really good at one thing but not good about the other thing, which is right. indeed customer service or customer right. loyalty. Uh, many of these places, I know we, we had some issues with Windstream and a router uh, that we dealt with, and we've been Windstream uh, uh, clients. Windstream is a telephone provider and also a bundled provider as well. But um, despite the fact that uh, you know we've been with them for like uh, 28 years, uh, which is a long time, uh, we're sorry, but we can't give you a $100 router. We're going to have to have you pay for that. And mm-hmm. if you'd like one, you can have one. And it's like, no, 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 you don't get this. Uh, I can cancel my phone service. <laughs> and, 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 go, keep go and, number. and keep your number. And keep my number or, or cancel it altogether. I mean, many yeah. people today are getting rid of. But all of these companies, uh, you know, whether it be Windstream or Verizon or some other companies, uh, you know, this sounds like a uh, technological, uh, you know what, session. But, uh, you know, there's a company out there called You Send It uh, that has been illustrious in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in doing a great job of helping to transfer large amounts of data, in our particular case, in advertising and marketing, whether it's a mm-hmm. radio spot or a television spot or a, a huge PDF or something. Uh, you know, they're great, absolutely great. As a matter of fact, they uh, asked me for an opinion, and I quoted, uh, was quoted as saying they're like the FedEx for multimedia, and they right. are, but up until recently. And again, wh- where did they fail? Uh, their, their, their service failed uh, not only so I wasn't able to send the things that I most importantly needed to send, but when I tried to get through to these people, it was nothing but uh, 20 minutes on the phone uh, with a message on hold that just told me how wonderful they were. Uh, there's nothing on the website, nothing to tell me what they were doing to fix the problem. Your call uh, is important to me. Yeah, oh, I hate that. Boy, if I hear that, it's like, <laughs> like I, know I'm, I, I know it's not. But here again, they, they lack the ability. You know, wake up, uh, companies. you got to take care of your people or else they're going to go someplace else. And that's so true. I think uh, you would relate as well, obviously, Brad, when, when you, uh, we talk advertisers. You know, you drive people to their doorstep and then they treat, treat them like crap. And then they say, well, advertising didn't work. We didn't meet our quotas and, and, and get things done as we should have. And it really, hey, business, American business, it's up to you internally to, A, know what's going on, and, B, care for your client like you, like you love them. And, uh, and, you know, in balance, you're right, Ray. And I think what probably irritates all of us most these days is that, on balance, there have been many companies that have increased and improved their customer service Tenfold, And I think the word got around that that needed to be a focus of one's overall corporate uh, initiatives these days, not yeah. just new product development or internal matters, but customer service being the most important internal matter. But uh, And as a result, I think the expectations have risen among most consumers to where in 2012, when you see this kind of thing go on, you say to yourself, how could this be? I mean, how could some company, a big company, be so clueless as to not understand the importance of customer service in 2012? I remember when we started this show, Ray, over 10 years ago, 
just in that short period of time, I think customer service was at an all-time low, and the expectation mm-hmm. of the consumer was not that great, and they would accept a low level of customer service. That's changed today. So when you have a good, a, a big company that has a, a multi-million, multi-billion-dollar revenue stream coming in from such a large. Uh, consumer uh, marketplace, mm-hmm. and they are still stumbling on the consumer service end of their business, it's really a head-scratcher. And the fact that we are clawing ourselves out of a recession, any business that you get, uh, U.S. business or global business, you ought to love the, the, the you-know-what out of your customers and take yeah. them, take every one of those and just make sure that they are indeed happy. So, with that said, let's talk about art instead, okay? But first... Uh, we're going to talk to Jeremy Cantor, uh, who, uh, who is our European news correspondent. Always a pleasure to have Jeremy as part uh, of the show. He has been with us for quite a long time. And then, after that, we're going to talk to you about a gentleman called Michael Finley. He is, well, we'll, we'll, we'll tell you about him in just a moment. Let's check in with Jeremy right here on The Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Hello and welcome to London for the European News Desk. This week, Domino's increases its slice of mobile, Euro RSCG is no more, and Tesco sees a new dimension to online shopping. This week, Domino's Pizza reported a rise in UK sales of just under 4% for the last quarter. That was driven by a huge leap in mobile sales which saw a 50% uptick over the same period last year. Domino's is Britain's biggest pizza delivery company and it's allocated more of its $15 million budget away from TV and into digital. According to Domino's, e-commerce now accounts for 58.4% of UK delivered sales compared to 46.5% last year. Mobile sales were up 46.9% and now account for 18% of all online sales. This week, the Euro RSCG brand was scrapped and has been replaced by the name Havas Worldwide. EHS 4D, the UK-based direct and digital agency owned by Havas, has been renamed Havas EHS and in keeping Euro RSCG PR will now be known as Havas PR UK. Havas first revealed the move back in April and claims it will break down the barriers between creative and media. There are now two main brands, Havas Media and Havas Creative, which includes Havas Worldwide and the Arnold Worldwide Micro Network of 16 agencies. Havas has also created the Havas Digital Group, an umbrella brand operating across creative and media agencies in the digital space. Finally, British retail giant Tesco says that it is close to realising its ambition of creating a fully immersive virtual 3D e-commerce store. According to Tesco's, the continued increase of UK broadband speeds and the take-up of smart televisions has enabled the supermarket chain to move closer to a 3D online shopping experience that actually mimics what it's like to be in store. Until now, relatively low broadband speeds, particularly in rural areas, and low web browser computing power have hindered development. However, Tesco's hope to reveal a lot more at the IAB Engaged 2012 Digital by Design Conference at London's Barbican Centre next month. This is Jeremy Kent at the European News Desk for The Advertising Show. Thank you, thank you, Jeremy Kent here at The Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Uh, born in Scotland, Michael Finley, a highly experienced and internationally renowned gallery director, art dealer, and writer. Michael is currently director of Aquavella Galleries, which specializes in impressionist and modern European works of art and post-war American painting and sculpture, which has to be just uh, cool as you can bet. 
Mr. Findlay directed one of the first galleries in the uh, Soho neighborhood in New York back in the 60s. Wow. Would you have liked to have been there? Yeah. Am I jealous? Absolutely. He established his own gallery in Soho from 69 through 77. During that time, he was the first dealer in the United States to show the work of Joseph Bias, Sean Scully, and several other important European artists. He also gave American artists such as uh, John Baldessari, Hannah Wilkie, Stephen Mueller, and Billy Sullivan, their first solo exhibitions in New York. So you make people famous, right, Michael? No, I don't make them famous. All I do is introduce them to uh, collectors and to people who in those days had the courage to ante up what was uh, what is to us now relatively small sums of money to buy works of art by people who had no name and uh, no track record. Uh, what, yeah. you, what you well, do you is know, incredible. Go ahead, I, Brad. I, I know, Ray, and I wish we were along your side uh, taking your recommendations back in the early 60s. We'd be uh, independently wealthy and yeah, not, not, not being able to afford the prices of today's art. But we're going to talk about that in a second, Michael. Uh, I went online after reading your wonderful, wonderful book, and I, you. I, you're going to hear me uh, mention that uh, throughout the show because – not only is it uh, a, a great subject to that you address, but it is so well written. I think it's across the board for a lot of different readers, and I want to get your take on that in a second. But meanwhile, I went online and I checked out what other books had attempted to tackle this difficult, if not perplexing, subject and saw there were several. And my question to you, Michael, is why did you write the book, other than the fact that you're qualified? Um, well... Uh, my wife and I often go to dinner with people in the art world, and uh, I, I'm sat next to somebody who turns to me and asks me a question which then inspires me to launch into one of my monologues, at which point my wife rolls her eyes, and uh, I begin to roll my own eyes at the sound of my voice. <laughs> and now I'm able to say, well, actually, I've, I've written a book about that, and I tell them to buy the book, and then after that we can talk about movies or, or TV shows or something. What a great, uh, what a great marketing <laughs> aspect to your interaction on a social level. So collectors, everyday art appreciators, who did you write the book for, Michael? I, I really wrote the book for the audience beyond the art world. I wanted to address people, whether they can afford art or whether they cannot afford art, who are tired of hearing about art discussed in the media only as an investment or only in terms of a large sum of money. I wanted to try to explain that art has meaning in our lives meaning that is really intrinsic and aesthetic and engaging on one level. On another social level, it's very important. It brings people together, whether it's simply going to a museum with a, with a spouse or a, or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a group of pals. You don't have to be wealthy to do that. Or whether the actual act of looking for and buying art, whether it's a poster, a print, whatever you can afford, should be uh, an experience that engages um, all of your senses and not just your pocketbook. You know, uh, and I want to describe for our audience, this is not only a book jam-packed full of great 
advice and information, but you've heard the uh, saying, a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, I'm thumbing through this book. I see <laughs> uh, colorful uh, images of Henri Matisse, uh, Pablo Picasso, various other artists, uh, Andy Warhol. And these images, uh, William de Kooning, these images are there by way of supporting explanation that you provide throughout the book. Your opening section of the book is called The Commercial Value of Art. Michael, if you could take us through the highlights of what elements determine the commercial value of art for our audience, please. Art is basically worthless because it doesn't do anything. You, you, can't, uh, uh, you can't ride it, sleep in it. Um, so what you pay for it has to be something that, that each culture uh, ag- agrees upon. And, and that's a kind of a, a pact that the culture makes uh, with itself. It's all relative. And rarity is a very important aspect of this. When it comes to contemporary art, fashion, trend, which is which, as we know, is very fleeting, can be a very important factor in how much people pay. People compete, whether it's at auction or privately, with each other to buy the few very major works of art, great works of art that come into the market. That competition creates the price. There are many factors that will fine-tune that price. The condition of the object, which will vary, Uh, the importance of the condition will vary according to what type of an object it is, painting or sculpture or drawing. The provenance or history of the object also has a bearing on it because that can establish authenticity on the one hand, and on the other hand, if the immediate owner of the work has been somebody who is celebrated in, in any sphere of life, it can have some added value. I'm curious, has the way of determining the commercial value of art, as you just described it, Michael, always been this way, or has this evolved over the years? In other words, could you have just described that same uh, value of art description and apply that to if we were to be in a time capsule and go back 100 years, or how did this come about? I think 100 years ago, uh, absolutely. I think three or 400 years ago, it was very different because three or four hundred years ago, you didn't have uh, a, a really a, a wealthy class of people who were competing to buy art. You had a small number of aristocratic patrons who who owned artists. Um, maybe the artists moved from town to town in Italy or 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 around the, or around the world, but basically they were commissioned to do great works by a small number of people, and that. And that was a different system. But um, I must, you could say since the rise of the bourgeoisie in the last two, three hundred years, uh, people like myself established ourselves as shopkeepers. Now we, we call ourselves, you know, gallerists. This is a fancier term uh, for people who broker and trade and buy and sell works of art. But I, but I think that the, the way things are done now is pretty much the way things have, have been done for 100 years. Although marketing and branding uh, with the major auction houses as fairly big spenders in this area is, is changing the nature of the business. 
Well, and we're going to talk about marketing and branding, and not so much from the gallery standpoint, although that's certainly important, but more so from the artist standpoint. But I want to set that aside for next segment and address right now uh, a hero in the art world from my standpoint. I, for those few people that happen to know, I'm a, a painter of abstract uh, art and have been a painter for several years. And Gerhard Richter has been a huge influence and uh, I've been a big fan of his work for years, long before he became most recently the most uh, what's the word I'm learning? He, he's the most high-priced living artist in terms of the, what his paintings command from collectors. And you mentioned rarity as being a, a, an element of determining commercial value. We also we always hear, well, he died, so now his uh, total <laughs> amount more, yeah. of art is finite, and then it drives the price up, and then you have competition, et cetera, et cetera. How does a guy like Gerhard Richter uh, command such high? dollar value for his paintings. Is that all about uh, competition for the art? I think, um, I think Richter, first of all, I think he's an extremely talented artist, and I think that's, uh, you know, that has to be said and understood, first of all. Secondly, I think he's a very, very intelligent and clever self-marketer, and, I, and then that's not a prejudicial comment. Again, that's, a, that, that, that's praise. Um, he has a huge network of uh, collectors and dealers and galleries and auction house people who have, uh, you know, gathered uh, gathered steam over decades, who who support um, uh, both the critical evaluation of his work and and the value it achieves, and he himself, I think, is very careful not to overproduce. Um, I think he's a, like, like Picasso, he's a very market savvy artist. Some artists, uh, underproduce, overproduce, they don't care what their dealer wants or what they need or what their collectors like, they do what they want. I think Richter has managed, uh, throughout his career to do the paintings he wanted to do, but at the same time, please various different segments of the public, because after all, the breadth of his work is extraordinary. He's a realist, and he's an abstract painter. He was an early pop artist, but you could also say he's a, he's sometimes can sometimes painted like a you know like a uh, like an old master. So I think that um, Richter is somebody who has now an extremely well developed and deep market. What happens when an artist like that dies? is not predictable in, in, in my experience. What usually happens is that immediately the market is probably frozen. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Um, after two or three years, if a major picture has come up for private sale and for auction, and it goes for a very big price, then a new market may be established for good pictures. Usually there's some kind of critical sorting out that goes, out, goes on after an artist dies. Their personality is no, longer, is no longer present. And sometimes you see parts of their output go down in value and other parts go up in value. What history decides 10, 20, 30, 40 years on may be very different from the state of the artist market during their lifetime. Makes sense. 
Makes sense. On the advertising show, Ray Schillens, Brad Forsyth, and our very special guest out of New York this weekend. Born in Scotland, but uh, living in New York and uh, doing great things uh, all around the world as well with his art and his expertise. Michael Findlay here at the advertising show is being powered by Shipple.com. It's a marketing plan for the web that really does cool things, and they've been a partner with the advertising show for many, many years. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com with Ray Schillens and Brad Forsyth back with more uh, with Michael Findlay here in just a moment. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Hot dogs, armor hot dogs. Welcome back. This is The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. And out of New York this weekend, we have a very special guest, Michael Findlay, uh, a highly experienced and internationally renowned gallery director, art dealer, and writer. Writer that is in the value of art, which is now out incredible book uh, whether you uh, whether you paint whether you don't paint whether you love art whether you don't love art it's a good read and very well illustrated as well we uh, we also understand that uh, Michael that you worked uh, on for for part of time uh, for the uh, the IRS which would be a very uh, interesting uh, story or maybe you're not allowed to tell that story but Michael I want to ask you a quick question here you know lots of us uh, lots of folks move through life without doing what they really passionately love why do you do what you do? It's, I think I think one's passage in life has a lot to do with luck and opportunity. And when I was a very young man, I had the luck and opportunity to fall into this business almost literally. I was I was eighteen. I was in New York. I was here for two weeks. I had two hundred bucks. I spent it. I had to have a job. I walked into a gallery and said, uh, "You know, give me a broom." Hmm. And um, and I, I, I started to work. I was a, a, I was a poet. Well, you, do, you don't actually make a living as a poet, or I didn't know how to make a living as a poet. I didn't become Rod McEwen. And um, uh, I found that I was doing something that I had a passion for. I seemed to have a talent for. I met a lot of very, very uh, subsequently proved to be very important artists. It was a moment in time in the early 60s in New York, where you could you could hear Charlie Mingus at the five spot for the cost of a bottle of beer. Mm-hmm. Andy Warhol was just beginning, to, you know, to, uh, to work and was, 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 was very much around. It was a small world. It wasn't a world full of, full of celebrities and high prices. Uh, and it was a very, I found it a, an, an interesting and comfortable world and a welcoming one. So I I trust that you were on a friendly basis with many of these well-known names, the Warhols, the Jasper Johns, etc.? Yes, certainly. I visited their studios. I um and Andy frequently asked me to quote on unquote get your rich friends to uh commission me to do portraits, which <laughs> which I which I managed to do. Uh, one of his first major portrait commissions was a five-panel painting of Dennis Harper, which, um, uh, which co- clients of mine uh, asked me to, uh, to commission him to do. Yeah. So let's uh, shift gears for a moment and talk about what I like to call the flavor of the month, I say facetiously. But in today's world, you touched on the marketing and branding of uh, Gerhard Richter 
quick plug, by the way, if you get a chance to see the Gerhard Richter movie that's out right now, I'm speaking to our audience, not you, uh, Michael. I encourage you to go see it. I saw it at a Museum of Fine Arts in Houston recently, and it was an outstanding movie, but be ready to read some subtitles because it's all in German. Anyway, uh, you touched on how he does market and brand himself quite effectively. Moving forward to the flavor of the month, and I give an example of, say, Damien Hirst. What are your thoughts on artists today and what role they actively use in promoting themselves or branding their their art and their image as artists uh, versus artists of, uh, you know, 100 years ago that made it purely on, I guess, their art? I'd, I'd like to, to draw a parallel with that idea and, and slightly contradict you. And let's go back 100 years to England, to Victorian England, and a group of artists called the Pre-Raphaelite Artists, one in particular called Frederick Lord Leighton. And in his time, Frederick Lord Leighton was probably almost as famous as, as anybody in the British Empire, up to and including Queen Victoria, and he was the only civilian whose home uh, she would visit. She went to visit his studio. He was fated by hundreds of thousands. His paintings uh, went for large sums of money. Uh, he was he was knighted. He became an aristocrat. Um, he basically had uh, his own manufacturing and branding business. Um, and uh, within 10 years of his death, and this partially had to do probably with the way the world changed rapidly at the turn of the of that century. Um, not only was were his works um, no longer looked at or bought, but they were thought of with contempt. And so, uh, you can have and have had throughout history artists who have, well, maybe I'll use I'll use the word pandered to the cultural taste of the times, mm -hmm. been hugely successful, employed many assistants, whether they're making prints or reproductions, they've had a certain kind of machinery, whatever kind of machinery was appropriate for the age, and yet they failed to leave anything but the very faintest footprint in art history. Now, I'm not making any judgments about Damien Hurst, but I'm saying here you have an artist who has self-created uh, huge machinery to support work that is manufactured, and he boasts of the fact that it's manufactured mostly by assistants. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he spends a great deal of his time attending to, um, you know, to his, uh, uh, to, to, to his supply and his demand. Um, but a lot of the work, it seems to me, is owned by a relatively small number of people. And um, at the end of the day, that doesn't really create what you in your world might call market penetration. Um, I think it's at the moment a wide market, but it may be a shallow market. We, until he died recently, we represented uh, another British artist, and, and I... Uh, I don't want to be sort of uh, controversially partisan, uh, called Lucian Freud. Sure. Uh, Lucian Freud, you could say, was almost the opposite of Damien Hirst. Um, uh, he painted by hand. He painted obsessively. He was reclusive. 
Um, he had a very, very small circle of friends. He avoided the limelight. Um, uh, he was happy to sell everything that he did, and he painted as, as much as he could. But his output, because it was all by hand and uh, nothing in any editions except for a small number of etchings, um, and so his work, which, you know, the paintings have sold at auction for over $30 million, um, I think his work, both because of the nature of it um, and the fact that he is bought by and shown in museums, you know, worldwide, may well have more of a, uh, uh, say, historical longevity than Mr. Hurst. But I don't have a crystal ball, and I could be completely wrong. And uh, Hurst, you mentioned that maybe a bit sh limited on collectors. He has a, or makes a lot of effort, I guess, to get museum shows, which again raises his, uh, his visibility and his perceived prestige in the art community, wouldn't you say? Yes, but that, that actually, when, when, you look, when you look at it uh, uh, with a magnifying glass, you'll see that the vast majority of his exhibitions are in commercial galleries. Um, he has not had a lot of major retrospectives in, 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 in world-class museums. I'm not saying that won't happen. He's still a relatively young man, after all. And I'm sure the people are working hard on his behalf uh, you know, to, to achieve that. But, but the point is he's also achieving a reputation among people who, quote-unquote, don't know a lot about art, as, oh, the guy that does the dots, or the guy that does the, the stuffed shark, you know, which is, which is good in terms of notoriety. But that, that doesn't mean that they're actually going to look at his paintings, and when they do go and look at his paintings, can they spend longer than five or six seconds? Or how many have the stuffed shark in their home as artwork? Yeah. Right. And let's not lose sight of the fact that an exhibition at a gallery, be it a, a Damien Hirst at a Gagazian uh, in New York City or, or some other uh, high-level, well-known gallery, is all about selling the art, not bringing people through to look at it, right? Yeah. Obviously, it's, it, it, it's a sale. And... Um uh, if the public is engaged with it, that's fine. They may buy some posters and some books. But the target is uh, is that Russian oligarch who can pony up $20 million for another big dot painting. Exactly. So let's talk real quickly about the international art market for a moment, which in recent times has been defying global economic and political events as prices have continued to escalate. What do you think this is, Michael? Why wouldn't there be a correlation between market conditions and certainly political unrest and the art market on an international basis? Well, I have, I have two theories, and they're not entirely uh, uh, synchronized. One is the art market follows uh, uh, by a long shot other um, other things and events. On a local level, back in the 60s and 70s, we thought that the art market trailed the New York real estate. The New York art market trailed the New York real estate market by about nine months or a year. In other words, that if the terrible things are happening in the world, it will eventually catch up with the art market. And indeed, in late 
2008, when everything fell apart, the art market did froze for for a number of months. It it was it was sluggish for a year or so, but it did actually recover quite quickly. Um, so one of my theories is that it's just a matter of time. The other of my theories is that in fact there is often a flight towards tangible assets of funds when world economies markets. Um, are unstable. That um, not this is perhaps not so much true in this country, but in in Europe and possibly in Asia, where there is a very very rich tradition of personal collecting and understanding that works of art have real value. That's not necessarily that they're going to make money for you, but the fact is they won't lose money for you. That if the the world is in turmoil, you're your half a million dollars is it could that could turn to nothing in the bank or with inflation and you buy a painting worth half a million dollars in 10 years time you may still have your half a million dollars you may have a bit more but if you put it in anything else it could be it could go up in a puff of smoke so i do think that that the art market benefits to some degree from jitters in other markets well, before we take a break, I want to mention real quickly, Michael, that uh, whether it's uh, Paul Cezanne, Marc Chagall, Edgar Degas, uh, Vincent van Gogh, David Hockney, Jasper Johns, I'm just picking indiscriminately uh, a list, I mean, sorry, a, a few artists off of Aquavella Gallery's list, you being the director of the gallery, I must say, if you're in New York City and you want to see some great artwork, it's a great place to go, and it's really too bad you guys aren't able to acquire anything uh, decent in the art world. <laughs> we currently have a show of James Rosenquist, who's a, who's a, who's a great American painter, who's 1965 uh, mammoth painting. The F-111 is now uh, reinstalled at the Museum of Modern Art, and his new paintings from 2012 uh, are just, just as zingy, and we've got... Uh, huge ones and small ones here in the gallery now. And so. you can see that at aquavellagalleries.com. And I must say, I read a book on James, which I think was an autobiography. And yes. he came up as a little sidebar, Ray. He came up through yeah. the advertising world in that he went to New York from Minnesota, as I recall. Mm -hmm. yep. He wanted to break into the art world, but he wanted to do it on his own terms and his own timetable. So what did he do? He started painting billboards back in the 50s, 60s, I guess, uh, back when they actually painted uh, images on billboards and became quite good at it. And you will see if you check out his work and look historically at James Rosenquist's work, you'll see the influence of painting billboards uh, on uh, within his own artwork. You nailed it. That's perfect. Yeah, it's still there. He's very, very proud that he was a, a union, a union painter, and that he'd, he'd get his lunch pail in the morning, and they'd say, "Okay, you go up to 125th Street." and you paint 125 bottles of Jack Daniels on this huge wall. <laughs> and he would be high above uh, Times Square elsewhere and painting, and he was also often requested by many of the movie studios out of Hollywood uh, to paint particular uh, movie stars' uh, faces and so forth because he was the only artist they trusted that would replicate uh, what the studios believed would be a 100% uh, 
look of the of the Hollywood star, which was so important in the movie business. And, and you just said the man was high and painting bottles of Jack Daniels. Yeah, that's a you know it's interesting. We experienced some of that uh, back in the eighties uh, with Gannett. Uh, when Gannett Outdoor used to actually do that. They did that in a warehouse uh, in Detroit that we, uh, we had there as well. Michael Finley is our guest today on The Advertising Show. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. We've got more to come here in just a moment. Stay with us. This is a great show. The Advertising Show, Ray Schillens, Brad Forsyth. Michael Finley was born in Scotland, got to New York. Uh, imagine being in the Soho a district uh, back in the 60s and, and the 70s as well. 84, Michael joined the staff of Christie's Auction House as head of the Impressionist and Modern Paintings Department until 92. That's when he became International Director of Fine Arts and a member of Christie's Board of Directors. At Christie's, he supervised the sale of many important collections, including a painting by Van Gogh, which sold for $82.50, no, $82 million $500,000. That had to be a day with a couple of bottles of champagne or something there. And we're so happy. Oh, by the way, we're talking about the book today, too, as well. Michael's book, The Value of Art, which is highly acclaimed in the art world and, of course, uh, for for uh, folks who are just interested in this uh, in this venue as well. So you can find that right now, The Value of Art. Michael, it's a, a sincere pleasure. Thanks for taking time out of your day to talk to us. It's It's a great pleasure for me to do that. Yeah, and you mentioned Christie's, uh, Ray. Sotheby's, Michael, just announced a joint venture with Beijing Jinghao Art yeah. and has become, by way of doing so, the first foreign company allowed to sell art in China. So wow. is, this, is this a big deal for Sotheby's? And if I'm Christie's, which you once were involved with that organization, how am I feeling about this Sotheby's deal? In, in 1991, that's quite a long time ago, I had a series of conversations with a, um, a minister in the Chinese government about establishing uh, a joint venture of, with Christie's. Um, and Christie's, in fact, uh, under my uh, direction, opened a representative office in Shanghai in 1991. Um, the Chinese government wanted, or actually offered Christie's uh, a monopoly on the business. But the Chinese government wanted a, a lopsided partnership. And uh, the Christie's board uh, had a policy actually against joint ventures, period, and particularly against joint ventures which weren't 50-50. Uh, so I don't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. Christie's passed on that joint venture. Within a year... Um, Chinese-owned auction houses started springing up. They looked like auction houses. They had catalogs that were like auction catalogs in the West, but I don't think they actually uh, performed uh, strategically uh, the same functions as, a, as an auction house. Mm -hmm. um, China is obviously a huge market for art, and um, there are have been in existence for... 20, 30 years, major collectors in places like Indonesia and Taiwan and Singapore, overseas Chinese, so-called, but very few from the mainland. And there's great wealth being developed in the mainland. Um, I wish Sotheby's well with that venture. 
Um, I think both auction houses have put a huge amount of effort and investment into opening up uh, China as a potential as potential buyers and eventually sellers of Western art as well as Asian art. Um, however, I think it's I think it's uphill. I think it's an uphill battle, and um, there will be some thrills and spills. There have been, and there will continue to be. Well, that's interesting. And by the way, uh, for those that may not be familiar with the value of art, if you pick up a, a copy recently of Art in America or Art News, two wonderful uh, publications covering the art world, you see wonderful reviews about our guest book. New York Observer did the same thing. Wall Street Journal covered the uh, the uh, book. And then, of course, the Wall Street Journal also covers James uh, Rehnquist's uh, upcoming show at Aquavella. So I'm thinking maybe, Ray, you tell me, uh, I think uh, our guest, Michael Finley, knows someone over at the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so that said, I'm going to ask you a very important question He's that I think a lot, of our, yes. a lot of our audience doesn't realize, that most uh, people either have bought art, very expensive art, from Michael, or pay for these kind of uh, answers to questions like these, and you're getting them free of charge today on the advertising show. Do you think the... Uh, Election this November will have any impact on the art market one way or the other? Oh, boy. You really put me on the spot. Um, because uh, I vote against my self-interest. You can figure <laughs> that one out. <laughs> I think you just told me who you vote for. <laughs> I Yes, I, I think I did. And, and, I, and, I, and I was a big supporter first time around. Oops. There, I told you. Um, if there's any question now, we know for sure. I, I, I don't, I don't think that. Um, uh, I, I don't think it makes it makes going to make a huge difference one way or the other. If the one percent has to pay higher taxes, I don't think that means they're going to stop buying. Uh, they're going to stop buying art. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think a lot of our audience, not a lot, but let's say a, a portion of our audience may not actually understand art as much as they may be enjoying today's show. They maybe uh, have walked into a museum or a gallery and find themselves scratching their head, especially at abstract paintings or sculpture, right. for example. What would be your advice on how someone could begin to formulate a connection with the artwork or the artist as they are viewing art that maybe is not making an immediate connection with them? I would make an analogy with music, and I would say to that person, I would ask that person, uh, what kind of music do, we, do you enjoy? And they might say classically, they might say Beethoven, they might say hip-hop, they might say rap, they might say what, what, whatever they say. I'll say, well, do you know a great deal about that? You have a lot of inside information. And they'd probably say no. I'd say, do you read music? they say, no, I don't read music. I'd say, well, but you can make, you have made those choices. In other words, you, you know what you like, you know what you listen to, and you probably learn quite a lot about the artists that you like in that area. And they'll nod their heads and they'll say, yes. I say, well, when you go into a museum, just imagine it's a huge music shop and you wander around and you find something that catches your eye. Then you stay with it and spend, spend a lot of time with it. Don't spend uh, 10 seconds, spend 10 minutes. That is actually a, a long time looking at something that you like. Don't worry that you don't know what it's worth or who did it or when it was done. 
just try and engage it with your attention. Um, I find that, simple as it sounds, is often the easiest way to enter it. Don't work too hard. Let your eyes do it. Let your feelings do it. And don't worry if you don't like something that everybody else thinks is great. That's your taste. And you have, you deserve to have your own taste. You don't have to go with the herd. When you do find things that engage your attention, you can learn more about them. You know, you could become an expert or you could simply buy the catalog and, and listen to what someone else says. Don't, don't take the audio guide, whatever you do, because you don't need to be told what to like. You don't need to be told what to look at. Let your eyes lead you around. And uh, there is such a huge variety in the visual arts, in the fine arts, that if you don't really like abstract painting, fine. Give it a chance. Give it a shot. If you don't like it, move on. There's plenty of figurative work that you might like. Maybe you like Monet. Maybe you don't like Andy Warhol. If you don't get it, doesn't matter. There's a lot of music that I don't get. Sure. My, I, have, I have a 37-year-old son, a 12-year-old daughter. They listen to completely different music from me, and I think that's fine. Sure. You know, a couple questions before we wrap up the interview, and I think Ray and I could both speak to you for another hour, but we're going to have to wrap it up. So two final questions. One, I think most people who purchase art at the retail level, uh, they do just that. They think in terms of walking into either a gallery or even a decorative-type retail outlet that may have, heaven forbid, giclée, prints, whatever, or maybe a step up from that and, and purchase original art at a gallery. So which is better, in your mind, uh, to buy art through an art auction or from a well-qualified gallery that specializes in original art? The, the transaction that you have control over is a transaction in the gallery or in the shop. That's the transaction in which the price is stable or it might go down. And it's usually the transaction that gives you um, relaxed time to make decisions. You can you can buy great things at auction. You can buy great things at good prices at auction, but you're going into a field that is really not for the faint-hearted and not for the excitable, and you have to realize that as you show your enthusiasm for something, you are making the price go up for yourself as well as everybody else. If you have a very targeted focus, you know what you want and you know exactly what you're prepared to pay for it, and you know when to stop and you see something that auction, go and buy it. If, on the other hand, you want to develop your taste, you want to develop a relationship with somebody who, who can guide you, maybe for a number of years, who can give you advice about things that you see in other places, I would say make a relationship with your, your local art shop or art gallery, um, and certainly one that, that has a track record, that, that's been around. I mean, we've, we've been in business 90 years. I don't expect everybody to have a gallery on the corner of, uh, of of where they live that's been around for 90 years. But, uh, you know, maybe nine years, not nine days. Yeah, great advice. One final question. Uh, Walmart heir Alice Walton funded the creation of Crystal Bridges Museum of America in Benton, Arkansas. Many of our listeners follow this and know of this. Many may not. 
but it opened about a year ago to mostly good reviews. Uh, of course, many of the critics out there pointed out uh, prior to the opening that, and frankly, I happen to agree with this, but this is me asking you, Michael Finley, the art appreciator, not the director of the gallery with your uh, clients and background and interest in the art world, but just as a personal perspective. I happen to agree with many of the critics who point out that we now have millions of dollars of beautiful American art that will now or is now difficult to view. And because of the sheer fact that it's stuck out in the middle of uh, (laughs) the sticks of Arkansas. Okay, I said that. (laughs) Uh, So I'm asking you, uh, is it true and do you agree that wonderful art will never be seen by as many people as it would have been had it been located in a major metropolitan center like New York and that this is a legitimate criticism of Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, Arkansas? Years ago, a colleague of mine at Christie's was talking to a Chinese client and he kept talking about the Far East. And eventually the Chinese client stopped him and said, Excuse me, but far from where? (laughs) So I would say that um, great art that you can reach with an airplane or a train or a car, getting to it and seeing it somewhere else can be part of the adventure. I, I can actually only applaud the effort to take art out of private homes. Many of the paintings in that museum probably would never have been seen anywhere if, if she hadn't bought them by the public. And it's her prerogative to build a museum where she wants. Albert Barnes built his museum in Philadelphia and wouldn't let anybody go, go and visit, basically. <laughs> um, I, I've seen... Uh, I mean, one of the greatest works of art that I try and go and see as much as possible is in a, in a tiny town that is now French. It used to be Alsace-Lorraine called Colmar. It's, a, it's the Isenheim altarpiece. You could say that's, you know, in a tiny, out-of-the-way place. But um, for just think of this. For Europeans who are coming to America and they've got two weeks or three weeks to spend and they want to see great art and they want to see this country and they make that their destination, I, I think that could be a great pleasure. Well, Mike? you make a good point, especially about how much of this was uh, acquired by Alice Walton through private acquisition. By way of full disclosure, Michael, did Alice engage your services to purchase any of her art? No, I've, I've never met her, so I have no, I have no <laughs> okay. act to grind there at all. I, had I, would, be deli- I would be delighted uh, yeah. if she were uh, 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 you know, a, a client of mine, but I'm, I'm, if you had asked me about any, any regional museum that was a philanthropic uh, institution open to the public, I think I would have given you the same, same answer. And we have uh, Michael Finley's cell phone, so Alice, if you're listening, shoot us an email. Yeah, not. Hey, Michael, it's been a sincere delight uh, having a chance to speak with you today. We're not going to give your cell phone out, we promise. Uh, now, if Alice calls, I'm sure Michael wouldn't mind. Uh, that while well, that too, but oh, but only to Alice. All right. Thank uh, you very much, guys. Yeah, a, a great. Uh, and then let's remember to uh, to talk about uh, AquavellaGalleries.com, uh, which you are uh, wonderfully connected with, and and most importantly today, go get the book, The Value of Art, Michael Finley, 
Once again, thanks for being a part of the advertising show. It was a great pleasure, Brad and Ray. Thank you both. And with that said, it's a wrap here for the advertising show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Sincerely hope you enjoyed today's show. What an interesting and fascinating man Michael Finley is. And you do indeed mean that. Go get the book. It's great. Ray Shillings here, and the advertising show is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com, the advertising show. A copyrighted Big Big Radio Midgets production. It is indeed. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications. And it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.